Amen. You can be seated if you want, and why don't you turn your Bibles to the book of Job, chapter 34, as we continue our study through Job together. Let's pray, why don't we, as we set our hearts before the Lord. Father, thank you for an opportunity to worship and to honor you through songs, through prayer, through praise. And we just ask, Lord, as we continue now in our worship by opening the word of God, that you would give us a receptive heart, Lord. Strengthen us physically and mentally, but most importantly, Lord, just prepare us spiritually that the inspired truth of your word might just have its proper place Uh, like good seed as it goes into each of our hearts, Lord. So bless your word and speak now, we ask, through your Spirit's ministry. And we pray these things together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. Last time together, we began to look at chapter 32 and carries us all the way now through chapter 37, the words of this younger man, Elihu, or Elihu, however you would pronounce his name, and he's now the final person that begins to speak and give some explanation to Job regarding trying to understand his sufferings and the difficulties that Job has been going through. And last time we made it partway into the beginning of chapter 34 together. Again, his comments will extend all the way to chapter 37. And one thing that we saw about Elihu is he indeed was a very sharp Uh, young man. He waited his turn to speak. He let all those who were older than him communicate and share first. And it seems that the uh, uh, kind of burning sensation within him to want to share the things that he felt were necessary to say was kind of boiling up within him. And then eventually he just kind of unleashes now for this chapter 32 all the way through chapter 37 discourse. And we see, as I said, that he was indeed a very sharp man. Now, I mean that in two senses. One, he was a very sharp young man in the sense that he was a pretty knowledgeable young man. Uh, He says some things that are indeed some profoundly insightful things about God and his ways. And and he was, it seems, someone who was knowledgeable, though he was a younger man. uh, He did have a degree of knowledge and a degree of wisdom, and that's very evident. But he's also sharp in another way in that some of the way that he communicates is rather sharp and abrupt. Uh, And kind of the temperament and the nature in which he says certain things, his tone is a little bit sharp sometimes. Uh, And so in some ways he manifests some of his youthfulness in that a lot of what sometimes he will say on occasion is right. Some of the other things he says quite honestly are wrong and off target. Some of what he says really is just a repackaging of what all those older than him have already said, but he's kind of just now wanting to kind of reframe it and say it in his own way. But the error of some of what Elihu does is he's a little bit sharp in his tone, a little bit abrasive in the way that he communicates things. And we pointed out some of that last time, that how sometimes we can say the right things, but if we go about saying it the wrong way, it can not only sometimes lose its impact, but sometimes it can completely wound someone or shut them down. And this is something that we have to be sensitive to, and Elihu kind of gives us a little bit of a illustration of that. We left off last time kind of getting partway in the beginning of chapter 34, where Elihu was kind of manifesting, as we pointed out last time, that though he was hearing what Job was saying, that he wasn't always really listening very well and attentively to everything that Job was saying, because at times he was putting words into Job's mouth that Job wasn't actually saying and was kind of falsely accusing Job in some ways. In the beginning of chapter 34, he was talking about, take note there in verse five, that Job had said, I am righteous, but God's taken away my justice. In verse nine, he also mentions how he remembered Job saying, it profits a man nothing that he should delight in God. Now, unfortunately, uh, that's not accurate. Job never said that it doesn't profit a man to serve God. In a sense, he's putting words into Job's mouth there, which again, just reveals the fact that he's kind of indicting Job on certain things here. It shows that he demonstrated a real failure to listen. 
And sometimes when we are trying to share helpful things with people or we're trying to offer counsel or insight, one of the biggest mistakes that we can make, as I said, is that we can kind of, and I don't know what's the right way to, to phrase this, we can hear people's words but not really listen to what they're really saying. Or I guess, you know, the other way of putting that is, you know, you can listen to what everybody is saying. You can listen to all the words, but you're not really hearing what they're trying to say. I don't know which one is the proper one, hearing or listening, what's the right, what's the wrong. But you understand my concept there is that we can hear audibly all the words, all the phrases. But if we're not being an attentive and an active listener and paying attention really to the intent behind someone's heart, Sometimes we can start to kind of hear what we want to hear. We're hear what we thought we heard. And, and we start kind of misconstruing what someone actually said and what they didn't say. And here, he kind of indicts Job for some things. And he says, he has said it profits a man nothing that he should delight in God. Well, well Job never said that. Uh, that's, a, that's a misapplication and a misinterpretation and shows that Elihu, unfortunately, wasn't always accurately listening to exactly what Job was saying. And that's part of the reason why he responds wrong in some of the things that he says. So again, this is what irritated him. He felt like that Job was justifying himself and making God look bad in the process. And so in his zealousness, wanting to honor and defend God, he becomes angered by this. And we saw that at the beginning of chapter 32, that there's a degree of anger that he's saying some of these things, wanting to kind of protect God's reputation as if somehow God can't defend himself. Uh, and that's kind of the struggle of Elihu here. So he says, going on chapter 34, verse 10, therefore, listen to me, you men of understanding, far be it from God to do wickedness and from the almighty to commit iniquity again in other words you know look how dare any of you question god i won't stand here and let you challenge god or in some way indicate that you're right and god is wrong he says verse 11 for he repays a man according to his work and makes man to find a reward according to his way surely god will never do wickedly well that's true that's accurate nor will the Almighty pervert justice. That's accurate as well. And, and I don't know about you, but uh, that's a consoling truth about God. I'm thankful that God is not like a man, the Bible says, nor like the Son of Man. Does he speak and not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? That God's unchangeable. And, and the Bible tells us that God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. James in chapter 1 says, in God there's no shadow of turning. In other words, there's nothing shady about God. God's never going to pervert his ways or distort anything to please man or have someone's approval. Uh, God's never going to act in a way where we have to question what he's doing or pervert justice. I appreciate that about God. I appreciate that God is secure enough and firm enough in who he is that nobody's going to get God to pervert justice. God's going to always be just. God's going to always be right. And that's a reliable thing about him. He then, again, kind of in this effort to defend God, says in verse 13, who gave him, now he's talking about God here, who gave God, he says, charge over the earth or who appointed him over the whole world? In other words, he says, who's the one that gave God rulership over everything? Who's God's boss? I mean, which one of you actually gave God the right to rule or gave God the opportunity to be in charge? Again, the implication is no one. God is ruler over all. God's creator over all. He says, verse 14, if then he should set his heart on it, that if it's his desire, if he should gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to the dust. Again, there you can see he's familiar with and reflecting back from the account of creation in Genesis, where the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 2 that God, the ever present God, created man from what? The dust of the earth, right? And then he breathed into his nostril the breath of life, and man became a living being. And he's talking about here how God literally holds our breath and our life in his very hands, that our very next breath, we are dependent upon God for that very thing. 
that God keeps us breathing. God gives us life. God holds our breath, our very next breath in his hand. And he says here, so in control is God of everything. And so in charge is God of everything. He says, if he should desire in his heart to retract breath from man, he says, instantly all flesh would perish together. He's saying everybody could die in a moment and instantly man would just return to dust and would kind of just be disintegrated. Again, this kind of this idea of how dare us ever question God's authority. God is in complete control. And he felt that God was being questioned by Job and by his friends. He says, verse 16, if you have understanding, hear this. Listen to the sound of my words. Should one who hates justice govern? Will you condemn him who is most just? In other words, he's saying, uh, should someone who is not just, should someone who does not like or even disdains what is just and righteous, should they be allowed to govern? Boy, that's a good question to ask when you vote sometime soon, if you haven't already. What a great statement there. Should one who hates justice govern? I'll tell you, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> If someone has no ethical, moral, righteous value, they shouldn't govern a people. That's, that would be horribly dangerous, and it's destructive, and man will suffer for that. The Bible says righteousness is what exalts a nation. Sin is a reproach to any people. So again, w- when we exercise our God-given right, we're in an election season here. And, you know, A matter of literally a few days, we'll be electing a new president and others as well. It's not a matter of which candidate do I like better. What it becomes a matter of is which candidate is going to help support and uphold God's word and what has moral value and some basis of righteousness and justice for our society and for our culture. It's not a personality contest. It's not a talent contest. It's not a matter of even what it's just a matter of which individual. And again, listen, a a president is not a pastor. And this is one of the things, yes, I'm going to harp on this for a minute because I just feel led to now. A president's not a pastor. He's not a spiritual leader. A president is someone whose role is to be a commander-in-chief and to lead and to govern and guide a nation with policies that hopefully uphold moral values and righteousness and that which is best for a people under their governance and, and under their guidance and direction. But again, we, when we vote as Christians, should be taking into consideration that we're just simply voting biblically. What we know of the word of God, what matters to God, who is going to be the best individual to help uphold those things, to support those things, to not strip us from the rights of those things and allow the things that are just and righteous in God's sight to be propagated in the culture. Those should be the simple things that we take in consideration There's no perfect candidate. I tell you this, no one will ever fix America's problems. We're a little bit too far for that. If you haven't figured that out yet, many of you have been voting longer than I have. Has anyone fixed it yet? There's one who's coming that's going to fix everything. It's the king of kings, Jesus Christ, when he comes back to rule and reign in righteousness. Our job is to pray for government, to exercise our God-given freedom and right that we still have in this nation, thankfully, to be able to vote. But he says here, you know, even on a human level, this man, Elihu, a young man, he's saying, should someone be allowed to govern if they hate justice and that if they condemn what is just? He says that would be a horrible way to let someone govern a people on a civil level. And what he's trying to say is if we wouldn't let civil leaders do that, why would we let God govern over our lives if God wasn't just? And again, his implication is, you know, God is not unjust. If, if we look for just people to govern us civilly, certainly we should never question that God is more than capable in his holiness, righteousness, and justice to govern us properly as people. That's his implication behind this. He says, is it fitting to say to a king, you are worthless? I don't know. You can decide that. And to nobles, you are wicked? And then he says, yet he, referring to God, who's completely just, he is not partial to princes. Again, God shows no partiality to not only any man, but he doesn't even show partiality to those who serve as princes and kings and rulers. God's not partial to any man. He's no respecter of persons. He says, verse 19, nor does God regard the rich 
more than the poor, for they are all the work of his hands. So again, God values every person equally. God is not impressed with those who are more wealthy. He doesn't feel they're entitled to more. And listen, God is not overly impressed or feel as well that those who are less wealthy or who are poor, Jesus said, the poor you will have with you always. Jesus never taught eradicating poverty. That's not what Jesus taught. Jesus declared the poor you will have with you always be compassionate to the poor. Be helpful to them. Don't look down upon them. God doesn't regard the rich as more important than the poor, nor does God overly esteem the value of the poor that they should have extra pity and extra entitlements and extra rights just because they're poor and that the rich somehow should be punished just because they're rich. God teaches equality, that people are going to be at different statuses. There's difference and distinction and diversity among humanity. That's a part of the balance of humanity. And God doesn't look upon anyone with partiality or preference. He doesn't regard one more than the other. He sees them as equally important. No one superior, no one inferior. He says they're all the work of his hands. Again, God created all. God created every person. God created some of us as the work of his hands to live in the United States of America in a very affluent, blessed culture. But look, look at, look at a good portion of the rest of the world where third world countries in utter poverty. God created and allowed those people to be born in utter poverty. And he created them. And he cares about them and he values them just as much. And just because they live in those conditions doesn't mean they're less important or inferior. They matter just as much to God. And some of those people love the Lord just as much as some of you and I do. Again, God doesn't show this partiality. All of people matter to God. He sees equality among every person of status or ethnicity or whatever it may be. He says, showing again how God's not overly impressed with any... Man, he says, in a moment, they die. In the middle of the night, the people are shaken and pass away. The mighty are taken away without a hand. Again, he's just speaking in verse 20 there of how life is fragile. In a moment, he says, even the mightiest of men, the the strongest of the people, he says, the mighty can be taken away in a night, in an instant. Again, there's, there's no man in some way that is, again, more superior. He says, look, men really aren't that impressive. There's a fragility to life, whether you're rich, poor, or whoever you are. And this recognition of our utter dependency upon God is the same for all of us. He says, going on regarding God's governance over humanity, for his eyes are on the ways of man. That's true. The Bible teaches that all throughout. God's eyes are upon the ways of man. And he sees all of his steps. There is no darkness nor shadow of death where the workers of iniquity may hide themselves. So Elihu just, again, bringing forth this reminder. We've seen it many times. There's nothing that we can do as people that God is not fully aware of, completely acquainted with. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 4 that everything is laid naked and bare before the eyes of the Lord to whom we all one day must give account. God sees everything. And this is something that's an incentive to living right in our lives. I mean, just think about the reality on a human level. There are indeed things, for example, that we would do that we would not do if someone else were staring at us. Correct? Do you typically choose to pick your nose right in front of someone? I hope not. Why? But do you pick your nose? I know you pick your nose. Because everybody's gross. But there are certain things that we would not do if someone else was looking at us. Right? Well, look, in the same way, we need to recognize we are deceiving ourselves when we do certain things and we think no one's looking at us. Yes, someone is looking at us because the word of God says his eyes are on the ways of man. Every way that I go, it says his eyes see all of my steps, every step that I take. Now, if I'm doing what's right, that's an encouragement. 
because that means when nobody else sees me do what's right, make the hard decisions, do something integrity, and there's no applause or commendation or encouragement for it, God sees it. And God says, I know nobody else saw you do that, but I saw you did that, and I'm proud of you. I saw you. And God rewards that, and God honors that. But it's also the incentive to keep us from doing what's wrong that hopefully in the fear of embarrassment and shame or consequence that we realize, oh, my goodness, God is watching me, that that would be an incentive towards righteousness and avoiding evil and avoiding sin and wrong decisions. That's why he says, verse 22, there is no darkness nor shadow of death where workers of iniquity may hide themselves. We can't hide anything from God. You can't go in some cave or cavern or wherever and think that somehow you're hiding yourself from your work when it's iniquity. He says you can't hide your iniquity from God because he sees everything. There is no hiding from God. For he need not further consider a man. He doesn't need more information. He doesn't need further consideration. God knows everything going on in our lives. He doesn't need further consideration to get the full story on my life, that he should go before God in judgment. He breaks in pieces mighty men without inquiry, and he sets others in their place. So again, if someone's in rebellion, they're, they're not you know, utilizing their responsibility in a proper way at times, like Saul with David. You know, God removed Saul when he put David in his place, and God will do that from time to time. Now, understand, these are true statements. The problem, again, is what? Misapplication. Elihu or Elihu is saying, Job, this is perhaps then what's going on. Nobody else sees what you're doing, Job, but remember, God sees all your steps. And so those secret sins and things you must be doing that have brought this suffering upon your life, that's why you're going through these things. And the reason why you've lost this or that's been stripped away from you is because, Job, maybe God's putting you on the shelf and maybe God's just going to replace you because of some of the things that you've been doing in secret. Again, he's misapplying what are accurate truths in a way, unfortunately, that are hurtful to this man who's done nothing wrong, but is suffering nonetheless, but not suffering for his own sin. Therefore, he knows their works, he says. Now watch, he's going to get sharp by the end of the chapter. He knows their works and overthrows them in the night, and they are crushed. He strikes them as a wicked man in the open sight of others because they have turned their back from him. Again, the reason they're experiencing the striking or the judgment of God is because they've turned their back on God and would not consider any of his ways. Disregard for God bringing about his discipline. Again, that's what he's implying. Job, apparently you've turned your back on God. Boy, that's such a misapplication. That's the furthest thing from what Job had done. So that they cause the cry of the poor to come to him. For he hears the cry of of the afflicted indeed god does he hears the cry of those who are afflicted crying out to him and when he gives quietness who can make trouble and when he hides his face who then can see him whether it is against a nation or a man alone again referring to the sovereignty of god there when god gives quietness peace rest the ideas who can make trouble I don't know about you, that's that's a good thing to know, that whether it's for a nation, he says there, verse 31, or verse 29, excuse me, or whether it's for an individual alone, when God gives peace, it doesn't matter who tries to make trouble. If God gives peace in a situation, no troublemaker is going to disrupt that or take it away. If God wants to give his peace, by the same token, he says, if God pulls back and hides his face and doesn't want to become involved in a situation and kind of retracts himself, then he says uh, nobody can can get God to become involved. If God chooses to act in a way by his sovereignty, no man is going to force God's hand or thwart God's plan one way or the other. He says whether it's against the nation or whether it's how God's working in an individual life alone, that the hypocrite, he said, should not reign lest the people be ensnared. Again, read verse 30 when you go to the polls and vote. That the hypocrite, should not reign, lest the people become ensnared. For as anyone said to God, verse 31, I have borne chastening, I will offend no more. Teach me what I do not see. If I have done iniquity, I will do no more. Should he repay it according to your terms? In other words, is that what the problem is here? You guys want God to act upon your terms. He said, should God repay according to your terms just because you disavow it? Or just because you disagree with God? Does God somehow need to 
come and accommodate your terms. He says, verse 33, you must choose and not I, therefore I speak what you know. I like that strong statement. There's a good reminder there. Elihu says, you must choose. I can't choose for you, he says. You must choose. Individual accountability before God. We all stand before our own maker. You must choose. Men of understanding, say to me, wise men who listen to me. Look where he goes now. Job speaks without knowledge. Ouch. His words are without wisdom. Double ouch. Oh, that Job were tried to the utmost because his answers are like those of wicked men. For he adds rebellion to his sin. He claps his hands among us as he celebrates his sin and multiplies his words against God. I mean, you would talk about somebody who is testy and begins to get sharp. He says, you know what? I think Job has said so many things in error. He says, to tell you the truth, verse 36, I wish Job were tried to an even more severe degree than God's already dealt with him. Apparently, God has not been severe enough with him yet, and I don't know what it's going to take to break this guy, he says, because his answers are like wicked men, and in fact, he's adding rebellion to his sin already, rebelling to a greater degree. Wow, you want to talk about how someone can think that they are so right on and be so completely off track. I don't know about you. Have you ever spoke with such conviction and tried to be so convincing thinking you are so spot on? And the reality is come to find it afterwards, you are completely off track, you know, and maybe you ended up indicting someone for something. And the reality is the shame of face was on you. And here you were, you know, Elihu, he is just coming off hard here you know, being super, super sharp in his tone. And now he's accusing Job of even being rebellious on top of being sinful, which was completely the furthest thing from what Job was enduring in in his suffering because of anything that he had done wrong, as we know. Moreover, chapter 35, verse 1, Elihu answered and said, Do you think this is right? Do you say my righteousness is more than God's? For you say, what advantage will it be to you? What profit shall I have more than if I had sinned? In other words, maybe it would have been better if I had sinned. I will answer you and your companions with you. Look to the heavens and see and behold the clouds. They are higher than you. In other words, he says, the answers to these things are higher than you men in your human reasoning. So he says, let me draw your attention to that which is divine that you would understand. Let me wax theological. If you sin, he says, verse six, what do you accomplish against him that is against God? Or if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? And if you are righteous, what do you give to him? In other words, how do you help God if you live righteously? Or what does he receive from your hand as a benefit from your righteous living? Your wickedness, here's his point, verse 8, your wickedness affects a man such as you and your righteousness, a son of man. So the idea there, Elihu is trying to say, look, God is sovereign and God is self-sufficient. And honestly, God is the self-existent creator who's been around for all time. And so he says, look, if you sin against God, you're not really harming God. Do you think somehow if you rebel against God or you sin against God, that somehow you're going to hurt God or destroy God's plan or somehow you can you know, behave in a way where your transgressions are going to do something to hinder God? He's God. And he says, by the same token, in some way, when you live righteous or you know, do what is right, he says, God doesn't really need our assistance. We're not giving something to God like God's going, man, I was really afraid the plan was going to fail until you got involved, Tony. I mean, now that you're doing what's right, thank goodness I have your help. Finally, I can bring my plan to pass. And again, the idea is he's trying to indicate here, God is not dependent upon us, nor is God really affected by what we do wrong or really at the end of the day, what we do right. What he's saying there in verse eight is he says, when we are wicked or when we sin, it affects other people. It harms others. Again, God is the self-existent God. Nothing is going to thwart or throw God off of his throne. He's God. 
But what he says is that when we sin and do what's wicked, our sin harms us and it harms other people because the consequences of our sin bring hurt and pain into other people's life and they end up bringing detriment into our own lives. And he says in the same way, when we do what is righteous, we bless other people and we bring blessing and advantage and benefit into our lives. But again, God is not dependent upon us for one or the other. Again, does our sin break God's heart? Yes, I mean that, and we don't want to discount that. I mean, our sin grieves God's heart because God loves us. And God doesn't want to see us do what's wicked because he knows that when we do what's wicked, we're just behaving in self-destructive ways, harming our own lives. And so that's why it grieves God's heart, as well as the fact that God knows that when we sin, he sees the negative, painful impact that our sin has upon other people that are connected to us. Our spouses, our children, our families, our friends, our brothers and sisters in Christ, people that our sin has a negative consequence against, that's, that breaks his heart because he sees that. But ultimately, he says, look, God's not going to be swayed one way or the other. So he says, look, if you think you're going to get mad and rebel against God and punish God by rebelling against him, he says, uh, that's really not going to work. I mean, God's still going to be God. You're just punishing yourself. You're just harming yourself, he says. And in the same way in humility, he says, even when we do what's right, it's not as if God's utterly dependent upon our help. He says, God will get the job done either way. If anything, God allows our life to be a little better when we do what is righteous. Now, again, he's trying to apply some of these things to Job, but uh, certainly truth to a degree of what he says there about God and his nature. Verse 9, he says, because of the multitude of oppressions, they cry out. They cry out for help because of the arm of the mighty. But no one says, where is God, my maker, who gives songs in the night? Well, that's a, a great reminder there. A God who is our maker can at times give songs in the night. Remember in I believe Acts chapter 16 where uh, there Paul and Silas are arrested and they're in the prison. And, and there it says they begin at midnight to just start singing hymns and praises to God in the midst of their suffering. God begins to help them to process their sufferings by giving them worship songs. You know, there they are in the middle of the night, you know, in, the, in this miserable prison having been beaten and, and now they're stuck in this horrible condition. And you imagine, they just start singing, it is well with my soul. And I imagine all the other prisoners are going, would you shut up? We're in prison, man. What? And, and, but yet they had songs in the night. And the Lord was helping them through worship to process their struggles and their sufferings. And, you know, in a book that's much about suffering, what a great reminder here. The Holy Spirit brings about this point from God that God is the one who gives songs in the night. Why were Paul and Silas singing? Because the Holy Spirit was putting worship songs on their heart, saying to them, I know you're going through a hard time right now. Sing this song. Use this song to process your hardship and your suffering. Look, I, I can't encourage you enough. One of the best ways when you're going through a hard time to process your suffering is to just worship, is to just worship. You know, there have been numerous times in my life where whether it's, you know, a, a challenging time or a hardship or something that I'm processing where just getting alone with the Lord, being in my car, doing something, and just turn on the music and just start singing. And sometimes just between me and the Lord, let a tear or two flow and to just let God process that. And, and, and just as I'm singing and expressing to the Lord, just letting God take some of the steam off of the difficulties and the hardships that we endure with at times. And how wonderful that God can can do that here and he speaks of god our maker who can can give us songs in the night seasons to help us as we go through those dark and difficult times he says who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth so again god gives us greater understanding than all of the animals in creation he makes us wiser than the birds of heaven there they cry out but he does not answer because of the pride of evil men surely god will not listen to empty talk nor will the almighty regard it although you say you do not see him yet justice is before him and you must wait for him so he speaks about some of the reasons at times why god 
may not answer a prayer, why God may not answer a request. He mentions, for example, there in verse 12, sometimes it's the pride of man's heart. And again, that can be a hindrance. The Bible tells us that if we regard iniquity in our heart, the Lord won't hear us. It doesn't mean that he's not aware of what we're saying, but the idea is that the Lord can choose to just, in a sense, not listen to what we're saying because we're still cherishing something else that is some sinful thing, whether it's pride or anything else. And God says, look, as long as that's the focal point in your life, then I'm going to indicate to you my displeasure by that, by that, in a sense, refraining from answering the thing that you're asking until you address that. First Peter chapter three warns husbands about that. It, it literally warns husbands not to be harsh with our wives. And it says, lest your prayers be hindered. Now, I don't know about you, that, that warnings, why doesn't a wife get a warning like that? That's what I felt like when I read that. But that's a warning that God gives to husbands. Look, you start getting proud and arrogant and nasty and harsh and mean and cold with your wife. God says, look, I, I'll just, I just won't listen to you anymore. <laughs> Lord, wait, I just, wait, 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 what's the matter with you? Look, I'm not talking to you until you go talk to her. That's how it's going to work. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm upset with you right now. <laughs> so don't talk to me about anything else until you change your attitude or you go make something. And again, God at times has ways of getting our attention. He says he may not answer because of the pride of evil men. Or he may not listen, he says, verse 13, to empty talk. That is just, you know, vain repetition where we're just talking out loud, but we're really not sincerely talking to God. And again, Jesus even cautions us about that, that when we pray, that we'd actually pray. And I read a commentator years ago who said, sometimes we have to pray until we start to pray. Was that good? You have to pray until you actually start to pray. You know, Jesus warned about just vain repetitions, you know, just spiritual idle chatter. Sometimes that's why I like praying with brand new baby Christians, younger believers, because, man, they just they just pray very raw. You know, I mean, just they just <laughs> say stuff real. They don't understand how to, like, have flowery spiritual language and sound spiritual. And they just they make simple, direct, specific requests and they actually just pray. They just talk to God. It's not kind of as the Bible references here and in other places, you know, just empty talk. And, and again, we don't, we don't want to do that. If we approach the throne of a king, a literal king, if you got five minutes alone with a president or a king, I guarantee you're not going to go up and you're going to be using very efficient words, right? Not empty talk. You think I got five minutes here with the most powerful person in my nation or someone of the most powerful... I'm going to be very effective and specific and efficient with my words. And I think that when we talk to God, we should, we should take that into consideration, you know, that we should actually pray thoughtfully and, you know, speak with a sense of, of you know, specificity, that we're just communicating directly what matters and what is really real from our heart and not just kind of empty chatter filling up space when we're trying to really pray, whether alone or, or with others as well. And that's a place where we're often more sensitive to do that type of thing. Verse 15, he says, And now, because he has not punished in his anger, nor taken much notice of folly, therefore, look, here he goes again. It's almost like the, he almost knew where the chapters ended. Now, I know he didn't, because <laughs> the chapter first references were put in later on by translators to help us you know, find certain places in the Bible. But Man, it's like at the end of the chapter, this guy comes out with the sharp knife again all the time. I mean, look how he, again, this chapter. Therefore, Job opens his mouth in vain. Ouch. And he multiplies words without knowledge. Now, I literally wrote right in my Bible there, Elihu is indicting himself here. Because look at what he says. Job is in multiplying words that is he's talking a whole lot and he's really not saying much of worth and value he multiplies words without knowledge to some degree that's kind of what elihu was doing he was saying a whole lot i mean from 32 to 37 he just goes never stops and again sometimes we have to be careful of that 
he says, Job, you're multiplying words without knowledge, and the reality is, is Elihu is kind of doing that very thing himself here and trying to point the finger towards Job. So Elihu also proceeded and said, bear with me a little, and I will show you that there are yet words to speak on God's behalf. Really? You have more, Elihu? Honestly? <laughs> I, let's, well, it goes on, verse 3. I will fetch my knowledge from afar. I will ascribe righteousness to my maker, for truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. Wow. Well, excuse us, Elihu. What Bible college did you go to? Behold, God is mighty, he says, but despises no one. He is mighty in strength of understanding. He does not preserve the life of the wicked, but gives justice to the oppressed. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but they are on the throne with kings. For he has seated them forever and they are exalted. Again, he's beginning to describe now the might and the power of God, the one who reigns over all and preserves the life of the wicked, giving justice to the oppressed. Again, speaking of things that God does, again, the unfortunate thing is he's taking these things as general truths, and he's trying to use them as a blanket approach to come up with answers to Job's situation. Does God preserve the life uh, does god not preserve the life of the wicked well to a degree that is true because you know wickedness brings about destruction and the wages of sin is death but there are times where people live wickedly and they live way longer right than people who do what's right and righteous and there are times when those who do what is just you know, find themselves oppressed and mistreated, he says, and he gives justice to the oppressed. That is, he, you know, he helps out those who are being oppressed. Well, there are times where people are doing what's just and right, and they're being horribly oppressed and horribly persecuted. So for us, again, to take these general ideas and use them as a generalization to apply to all situations, that's what we have to be careful of, because then we start reading into situations and we start getting confused theologically, thinking somehow there must be something going on in this situation, and that's why that person's going through this hard time, or you know, that's why this individual is struggling. There must be something taking place. And again, Job's life is a fitting example that we have to be very careful of those miscalculations in our thinking from time to time. He says in verse 8, And if they are bound in fetters... Held in the cords of affliction, this was Job, he was suffering, it was like he was tied up in affliction, like a slave in cords of affliction. Then he tells them their work and their transgressions that they have acted defiantly. So he's saying sometimes God uses affliction to show us our wrong behavior. Sometimes God uses affliction and pain to correct us. Now, that is true sometimes. Sometimes when someone is enduring affliction or suffering as the consequence of what they've done wrong, he mentions here, so that God can reveal to them their transgressions and how they've acted defiantly. And sometimes God is not opposed to letting us experience the consequences of our sin and experience some affliction and hardship so that he can reveal to us where we have defiantly rebelled against him. And sometimes God uses suffering as a school of education in our lives. That's true. However, it doesn't mean every time we're in affliction or we're suffering, it's because God is trying to educate us about some sin or some wrongdoing in our life. And we don't want to misinterpret things that way. When we go through a hardship, are there always lessons to learn in that? Yes, I think so. I think that one of the greatest educators that God uses to teach us things about himself, about life, about what matters, what doesn't matter, is when we go through hardships, right? Typically, when we're going through affliction, we're struggling, we're hurting in any way, man, there are great life lessons that we develop, right? Character lessons and things we learn about God. But it doesn't mean every time we're suffering, God's trying to point out some error in our life. That's not always true. If that is the case, let God show you. But if that's not the case, then don't overanalyze the thing and think that God's getting you. 
Say, God, what do, you, what do you want me to get out of this? Do you want to teach me something about yourself, your faithfulness and suffering, your comfort, your presence? Again, God many times can indeed teach us things through our sufferings. He says he opens, notice, their ear to instruction. God can open our ears and let us hear his voice, even in the midst of our afflictions, and commands that they turn from iniquity. Now, he's thinking this is what Job needs, that God's trying to turn him from his iniquity. If they obey and serve him, they shall spend their days in prosperity and their years in pleasure. But if they do not obey, they shall perish by the sword and they shall die without knowledge. Again, is that generally true? Yes. To serve God, to obey God, it will bring a degree of pleasure and prosperity into our life. If we disobey God, we're going to cause our life to struggle and we're going to find ourselves perishing and hurting. But again, those two cannot always be tied together. There are general principles, but there are times when people obey and serve the Lord and they don't prosper. There are people who are on mission fields that aren't prospering financially and they're obeying and serving the Lord and they're not prospering, right? Look at Paul the Apostle's life. Paul the Apostle dealt with a great deal of hardship, I would say he was obeying and serving the Lord, but he wasn't prospering materially. Many times he was struggling as he was traveling around place to place, getting sick and going to different locations, planting new churches, serving as a missionary and going through hardships in many ways. And then there are plenty of other people who don't obey God and they may be prospering circumstantially, but they're not obeying God. So again, these are general concepts but we don't want to make theological you know, principles as proof texts to misapply them at times or we can get really off track. He says, verse 13, but the hypocrites in heart store up wrath. They do not cry for help when he binds them. They die in youth and their life ends among the perverted persons. He delivers the poor in their affliction and opens their ears in oppression Indeed, he would have brought you out of dire distress. Again, Job, God, God could have delivered you. He would have brought you out of dire distress, he's saying, Job, into a broad place where there is no restraint. And what is set on your table would be full of richness. But you are filled with the judgment due to the wicked. Ouch. Judgment and justice take hold of you because there is wrath. Beware. Lest he take you away with one blow. Be careful, Job. You don't want God to just let loose and swat you one time. He'll take you away in one blow for a large ransom would not help you avoid it. In other words, he's saying, Job, you can't buy your way out of wrong relationship with God. Again, that's a good reminder. Sometimes people think God can be bribed. And he says, Job, you're not going to pay God off. You're not going to bribe God. You know, we, we can do that with people, but... He says, what will your riches or all the mighty forces keep you from distress? Well, that's a good reminder. Will your riches or all the mighty forces keep you from distress? You know, sadly, some people have that false security, don't they? They think riches and wealth and their, their mighty position can keep them from problems. Look, you can be a multimillionaire and get cancer. You can be a multimillionaire and some tragedy strike your life. All the money in the world. All the power and position in the world is not going to keep you and I from potential distress or difficulty coming in our lives. And so we never want to have a false security that somehow those are the things that can preserve or protect us. The only security is God. That is the only security. You know, the Bible tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 6, even an instruction to those who are wealthy, it says not to trust in uncertain riches. I've always liked that term. Riches, but God calls them uncertain riches. Because Solomon, who was the wealthiest man in some degrees that we know throughout the entire word of God, he was the one that said money has wings and it just flies away, right? I don't know. Does your money talk? Mine does. My money says goodbye all the time. That's what it says. Always tells me the same thing. Goodbye. That's what money does. It comes and it goes. And in an instant... The greatest of wealth, he says, Job, you can't buy yourself out of your problems. Again, Job was at one time a very wealthy man, and he lost it all, didn't he? He lost it all, and to no fault of his own even. Again, Job didn't do something dumb. He didn't make a bad business deal. 
right? He just some things transpired that God permitted to happen in his life. And I mean, the poor guy lost everything and much of his great wealth. Do not desire the night when people are cut off in their place. Take heed and do not turn to iniquity for you've chosen this rather than affliction. Behold, God is exalted by his power. Who teaches like him? Boy, that's a great question. No one. <laughs> Who teaches like God? Man, nobody. The lessons God can teach us, wow. I mean, I don't know about you, but God is definitely the absolute best teacher I have ever listened to in my life. The things that he has taught, the lessons we've learned from him. He says, verse 23, who has assigned him his way? Who said, God, this is the way you're going and you follow it? as if we're going to instruct God. Who's assigned God his way? Or who has said, you have done wrong? God, what you did there is wrong. Now, we do say that, but who says it accurately? Who says that with credibility? God, I don't agree what you're doing. This is just wrong. And I wonder if God just, again, he's got broad shoulders and thick skin, if he thinks, I know it seems wrong to you right now. But one day you'll see, one day you'll see that righteous and true were all of my ways. And I never did anything wrong. Everything I did was right. It may not have made sense. It might have looked wrong. But from my perspective, loving you and knowing you, it was completely right. So he says, verse 24, remember to magnify his work of which men have sung. Everyone has seen it. Man looks on from afar. Now, as he goes into the remainder of chapter 36 and 37, he'll just again begin to speak about the greatness of God, and he'll talk about God's mighty power and his awesomeness, how God is great. Boy, what a perhaps maybe a fitting place to conclude this evening. He says, verse 24, remember to magnify his work of which men have sung. How do we magnify God's work? Which is, listen, it's never wrong. It's never wrong. And I don't know about you, sometimes like you, I struggle with what I see and what happens and what doesn't happen. And you wonder, man, it just doesn't seem right. Lord, it just doesn't seem right. As an act of faith to be able to say, Lord, I don't understand why it doesn't seem right. I found one of the best things to do is just to realize God if I just look to you and your greatness and I start to worship you, my perspective starts to change as I just start to sing and worship and focus on the greatness of God and magnify his work. And then all the questions, it's not like I get answers to them. They just don't matter as much anymore. They just don't matter as much anymore because you know that God is who he is in his greatness. Let's stand.